Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is episode number 108 and there are a few things that I'm not going to mention. I will. This is the second time we're recording this. I wasn't going to mention that. I also wasn't going to mention the fact that the couple that works together shares germs together and I apologize if my voice craps out. I wasn't going to mention that either. But there I am. So this is the story. We recorded this episode a while ago. And I edited, went to edit it the day before it was released, only to find that the audio gremlins had struck. Gremlins. I had a severe case of reverb, herb, herb, <laughs> and you had static monsters. Oh. So here we are. Kicking goals. Kicking slow goals. Kicking slow goals in a slow fashion, slowly drinking a glass of red wine to ease my way into the evening. (laughs) And this will be a slurp from a beer. Oh, great. Nothing like mouth noises. Uh, It's been a long time since we have done the old Mm. record the night before trick. It's, I don't, I don't, I'm not enjoying it, I've got to say. I'm not enjoying the fact that we're 12 hours out from releasing this episode and Mm. we're recording it now. So anyway, if things are a little silly, a little loose tonight, that would be why. That being said, it is a hostful, and again, many thanks to the Nerdist crew for letting us steal that term, which we didn't ask permission to do. (laughs) Let's get into it. Let's do that. Got some great questions. Okay, let's go. Okay. writes to us via, I'm not sure where. Facebook. Was it? Facebook. Are all these from Facebook? They are. Is that where people write into? You can. Facebook's a good place to contact us. I know we're always going to see it, but you can Facebook or leave a comment on a blog post Mm. over at slowyourhome.com. I'm looking forward to the day when someone asks a question over Instagram. Okay. Hmm. You heard it here first. It's about the message, not the medium. I don't mind where people ask questions, but these ones all did come from Facebook. Lucy is a 20-year-old university student. That's important. We'll get to that in a minute. (laughs) And a big advocate of slow living. But she feels like a lot of the content out there is targeted towards a different age group. I would agree with that. What advice do you give to Lucy regarding slow living and what would you have done differently at the age of 20 if you'd been introduced to the idea of slow living sooner? Mm, This is a really, really cracking good question and it's kicking off an episode full of really good questions actually. But first thing, big ups to Lucy because at 20 years old, I was an idiot. (laughs) Well, we both were. Yeah. We were both very selfish. We were spending every single cent we earned. We spent it on clothes, food. We were living out at home, were we? No, we were still at home. Still at home. So we knew we knew one another back then. We, we were did. dating. Just dating. But we were spending it on food, clothes, going out, drinking, everything you name it. And we were living paycheck to paycheck. I just it was just the, the antithesis of slow, which yeah. is not unusual for people of that age that's it but just big ups to lucy for even being mindful of it and being aware of it because i 
just speaking from my own experience, was all about me and what I was doing that day or that week. You know, it wasn't until I'd left uni that I even really started to think through the idea of like long-term goals. You know, Mm. it wasn't until we left uni that we started saving to travel and talk about what our future might hold. And, Mm. you know, we had these kind of nebulous ideas about what we wanted life to look like, but they were very selfish and self-centered, which I actually don't think is unusual for that age, but I'm just impressed. Yeah. So I think what I probably would have advised myself at that age, you know, if I knew then what I know now, was rather than focus on all of the elements of slow living that don't apply to me, because you're right, so much of the the blogs and the podcasts and the books and things are aimed at people who are either kind of mid to late 20s or people with families, mm. people with a mortgage, people, you know, who have more significant commitments than I had at 20. But what I would have encouraged myself to do was go deep on something that really interested me or really kind of embraced me with the idea of slow living. So whether or not that would have been environmentalism or adventure or travel or deepening personal relationships or, you know, an exploration of something and use that as an entry point into slow living, even if it was something as, as you know, as simple as meditation or yoga rather than things that are, are more broad. But I probably would have encouraged myself to go deep into one of those things because that's where I think you learn so much Mm. about what it is to live slowly and mindfully and intentionally when so many of the examples that you hear, even in, you know, media like this, aren't necessarily going to fit with the average 20-year-old lifestyle. So I think that that's probably what I would have advised myself to Mm. do at that age. Mm -hmm. Like go deep on something. Stop being so surface level. But I also think that the exciting thing is – A, that we've got people like Lucy who listen, who want to know more about it and who want to know more about engaging with slow living in their life right now rather than waiting until they're kind of more entrenched in the life and the world of the Joneses when they're kind of late 20s, early 30s and they find themselves with a mortgage and perhaps a family and a job that they can't leave because they've got all these other commitments. I think that there's something really exciting happening. Don't you? I am so... Jealous is the wrong word, but I'm so envious of Lucy. She in she's so young. You know what she's got? She's got time on her side. So she can create so much good stuff. She's asking, where's all the content? Well, there's not. You're it. You are in the prime position to be the advocate of slow living for Generation Y. You know, you are, you're in such a good position. I would encourage you to create something. Yeah, and I mean, look, that may not... that's what you want to do. That's right. That may not be what she wants to do, but even just having conversations with people. And I think then that means the conversation becomes more about the next generation of people coming through. And it's not such a foreign thing. Maybe they aren't going to have to wait until they hit their mid-30s to go, oh, man, is this this Mm. it? And start Googling and saying, how do I simplify my life? Which is exactly how we got to this place. So I think that there's, there's that side of it, which is really exciting and makes me feel really optimistic about the future. People seem much, and I see these in my nieces and nephews too, who are younger again. They're so much smarter than I was at that age, mm. so much more switched on, so much more mindful and emotionally intelligent, which makes me actually conversely to what the older generation make me feel, which is sometimes looking at what's happening in the world at the moment, really 
sad and mm. a bit a bit down about it, mm. the younger generation coming through make me feel really optimistic. So I think that's awesome. Yeah. And I guess as a part of that, when I was 20, I was definitely more idealistic in terms of what I thought the world could do. I mean, I was lazy, don't get me wrong, but I was idealistic. I could see the potential for change and I wasn't jaded and I wasn't weighed down by the reality of what life looks like when you do have a mortgage and when you do have you know, family and, and all those commitments. So I think that it's actually a really wonderful opportunity again to start the conversation and, mm. and to see where it takes younger people. Man, I feel old when I talk about younger people. Mm. <laughs> I'm really inspired too that we're connecting with this age group. Like, do you know what I mean? Like we're, I, I'm, I'm chuffed that Lucy's written in and wanting to, oh, me to, too. to, you know, try and. Because I think the real, like the majority of what we talk about is not, no, it's not related or relevant to only one generation or one period in your life. But I think that a lot of the examples that are used are. Mm. So I think if you're able to, to look beyond that, and you and I were talking about it earlier, we need to start thinking about using examples that are more relevant to a variety of, of people in a variety of stages and ages. That was in the first version of this podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I think the other thing that would have really appealed to me about slow living back when I was 20 is kind of the countercultural side of it. Like I always wanted to be a bit rebellious. Yeah. I wasn't a particularly rebellious person. You wanted to be a punk. Well, I had... Yeah, I had pink hair <laughs> and I wore studded belts. But like, I, I did want to be a positive person. I didn't want to be rebellious and destructive, but I wanted to be different. And I think that might also be a way to, to kind of engage, or it certainly would have been a way to engage with me about this idea of slow living and saying no and going, yeah, well, you know, this is what the Joneses are doing. I don't actually care. I think that there's something there too because it's, you're able to see when you're young, well, it's not actually working necessarily mm. in many cases. Mm. It's just not working. So what can we do different? Mm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really inspired, like you, by that question. Just one, one more aspect of it. She asked, what would you have done differently if you'd sort of known it? Mm. The thing is, I don't, want, I don't live with regrets. So no. everything that we've learnt, we've learnt, you know, it's been a journey. And I think that... We're actually rebelling against our 20-year-old selves now. Hmm. We are living totally, as you said, like just counter, totally opposite to how we lived then. So I wouldn't regret it. What I would say is that we were very unhappy at that time. We, you know, we weren't, you look back, we weren't happy. We weren't fulfilled. We weren't fulfilled, but we were learning. Exactly. And I think that it's really important. You're at an age where you, you are learning a lot and um, don't be afraid to make mistakes along the way. Yeah, I look, if I knew what I if I knew then what I know now and was able to do that without regrets, then I'm sure I would do a lot of things differently. I would save my money. I would mm. not drink as much. I would Yeah. No, seriously, I would I would spend more time in self-contemplation yeah. and read more and and just go like I mentioned before, That's just impossible. go deep. <laughs> it's impossible now. Uh, yeah, but it's it's a really interesting thing to think about, and I'm going to be thinking about that for quite some time. Thank you, Lucy, Lucy, Lucy. Sammy writes in, being a mama of four. I can't believe I said mama. Being a mother of four between the ages of one and eight. Can you talk about school holidays? 
and how much structured activities, outings and entertaining your kids you do versus encourage them to find their own fun. And perhaps limits you feel are good to set. For example, how far they are allowed to wander away from from home, home and from your it's person. Cu- it's currently school holidays. It is. Very relevant question. Very relevant question. I really do genuinely love school holidays. I love having the kids at home. I love the lack of routine. I love the lack of rhythm. I love the fact that they can stay in their pajamas until midday if they want to. I love the fact that right now they are camped out in the front room together watching a movie. Like I, yeah. I, I really, That's nice. I really genuinely love it. And I know it can be a super complicated time, particularly for people who work outside of the home and they've got younger kids. So there's all sorts of complications with, uh, you know, out of our out of term school care and all that sort of stuff. But I will say that it has been more complicated since we have started working at home, you mm-hmm. and I, mm-hmm. just in terms of keeping business running. So all that to say, we don't do a lot of structured activities at home uh, on purpose, I think, but also because it simply hasn't come up. Yeah, no, kids. I don't think our kids are old enough, really. No, they're, but there are families who, with kids the same age as ours, who choose to do like holiday programs and things like that. Like right. the YMCA, for example, has a holiday program. Our kids would be exhausted. I just don't think our kids would be that interested, to mm. be honest. So it hasn't come up. This is the way I see school holidays. It's an opportunity for the kids to recharge. They need to get out of rhythms as much as we do. Sure. And I think it just offers them, you know, the fact that they can sleep in a little bit more. Yeah, as you said, start the day slower, you know, have their pyjamas on until midday, you know, all that sort of stuff. They, they get a huge kick out of it, but it's really important for their little bodies to... Recover, recover and recharge, and yeah. Not be so pull, push and pulled throughout the day, you know, do be, be a little bit um, unstructured. Mm. Think, oh, really definitely. For them. And for them to get bored as well. Yeah, I think I've said it before many a time. I'm a big fan of boredom because I find that's where the kids' imaginative play comes out. That's where they become resourceful. That's where they're going to pull things apart and figure out how they work. And that's where I find them, you know, in the backyard after four hours of digging in the dirt and making things. And uh, I'm a massive fan of of boredom. What about this physical limits piece? You know, how far you'd let your kids wander away and... Are you asking that? Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm asking it to the other person in the room. <laughs> Sorry. Your tone sounded different. It's a really good question. And I remember Tish Oxenrider talking about this when they did their big worldwide trip for about 12 months. Her husband and her three kids traveled the world for yeah a year pretty much. And she said that it was amazing to see the difference in how American families were encouraged and even allowed to parent their children, which is quite a closely held, very monitored, Mm. quite structured way of playing where safety is obviously of the utmost concern, but to a point where it limits what the children are able to do. And then she saw it in other countries and specifically I'm pretty sure she mentioned the Netherlands or it was a European country anyway, Mm. where kids were encouraged to roam this big wilderness park and 
you know, there's a there was a saying there about the, the the safest place for a child to learn or play is it climbing a five foot high tree, which I really like because it's like you get enough space to explore and try things. And yes, you might fall out of a five foot high tree, but you're probably not going to really hurt yourself doing it. You might get a few scrapes, a few bumps, a few bruises, but it's kind of giving kids the 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 ability to roam enough while also being safe and, and aware mm. of that. So I've kind of taken that to heart. And over the past six months, uh, for example, our daughter is now allowed to walk our dog to the end of the street and back, which is really not very far. Mm-hmm. It's out of eyesight though. Just. But she also doesn't do that unless I'm doing the gardening in the front in the front garden either. Mm. You know, it's not like we just let her roam freely for hours on end but I think that there is something really important in that in as you obviously depends on your circumstances and where you live and your child and all of those things but as you feel confident and as the kids feel confident to just let those boundaries slowly expand I think there's something really important to be learnt there but the same thing applies in the home I mean I don't there are hours in the school holidays where the kids are doing things. I don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Like they're probably not playing with knives, but you know, it's that they're, they're almost certainly making a mess, but they're definitely playing and learning and imagining and exploring and figuring out things in the world. That's great. And I've had to learn to just let that be and let them make those messes and let them have those arguments and let them work it out. So for me, the school holidays is an extended chance for them to do those things. And, of course, that's because of the age that they're at. You know, they're seven and five, so they're able to play independently, but they're also able to come and ask us for help when they need it. And I also don't have younger kids like Sammy has. She's a got a one-year-old. Yeah. So that's, again, quite different. Mm. But Yeah, I, you're, pretty, you're pretty much full on with the one-year-old. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, and four between one and eight, yeah. you know. So oh, there's yeah. there's a... But there's also a, a mm. potential there for the older kids to amuse themselves and, and have and that. amuse the younger ones yeah. as well. So be interesting dynamic. Very interesting. So all that to say, I guess, that we really embrace unstructured time. We don't do things specifically to entertain the kids very often, but we will do things like go to the movies. We often go for bushwalks or nature walks or uh, we have movie nights at home, we sit outside and listen to music, we'll have campfires, things that are fun. And I think the kids find things that are fun when we're together at this age. And I know, again, that's going to change. Great question. The next question comes from Chloe, who asks, pick me, pick me. (laughs) (laughs) She'd like to know how we navigate birthday parties with sports friends, school friends, parent friends, and with their kids, firsts and seconds, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, it can turn, it, it can quickly turn into a party every weekend. Kids love parties. Yep, I do as well. And being invited so much so that I think saying a flat out no is almost cruel. And I also always think if you go and celebrate one child's birthday, then it isn't nasty isn't it nasty to say no to another child mm. how can we do a slow uh, birthday and if you're game i'd love to hear your thoughts on actually hosting a party with gifts lolly bags and how you'd make it a slow 
party experience? Good double-headed question, Chloe. All right, so let's break it down. Okay. Are you? Do you feel? Do you feel cruel saying no? Nope. Nope. I don't, and that's probably the first thing that I did want to say. I I really very much try to remove the emotion from saying no to these kinds of things because the reality is we can't do everything. We can't be everywhere. We can't please everyone and trying will just result in stress. So when you do have a big community or you know a, a huge group of friends, lots of different areas of your life where everyone's having kids, they're all the same age, it can get really overwhelming. So I think to be kind to yourself and understand that you're doing what you can, but beyond that, you can't ask yourself the impossible. Just remove the emotion out of it. Like it's, I understand the feeling. You don't want to let people down. I get, I completely get that, but I, I don't think it's cruel and I don't think it's nasty. I think that if you just shift your mindset to that of someone who's doing what they can, and accepting of the fact that when you say yes to something, it means you need to say no to something else. So that means if you're saying yes to going to all of these birthday parties, mm-hmm. you could quite well be saying no to family downtime. You could quite well be saying no to a weekend away or no to having friends pop over unexpectedly and join you for dinner. You know, there's there's only so many hours in a day. Yeah. And I just think that that kind of putting it on ourselves to please everyone is a it's a losing game. So that's probably the first thing that I would absolutely recommend. All right. So what's your? How can people do slower birthdays then? To host them. Yeah. Or to attend them. Oh, okay. Well, both then. Okay. So attending a birthday, a, a big part of birthday parties is buying a gift. Yep. I know as a parent. I don't love the experience of buying gifts for other kids, partly because I don't know what they're into. Yeah, that's right. And partly because I know what it's like to be the parent on the other side who gets this influx of maybe five or ten presents every 12 months and think, great, this is great, more stuff, how fantastic. I don't know any parents, they probably exist, but I don't know personally any of them, who love that Mm. or even enjoy that. So I try really hard to think of gifts that are experiences. I'm not averse to giving money to a kid. I mean, usually to family, I will say that. Mm. But movie tickets, yeah, tickets to the zoo, if there's an exhibition or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I mean, you could pull some money together and, and do something really amazing, mm-hmm. like, you know, indoor skydiving or something. Like that would be, a, that would be an incredible gift to give a, a 10-year-old kid. So mm. I think that I really do try to minimize the stuff that gets given and if we do give stuff it's almost always consumables craft art coloring in that sort of stuff uh in terms of the the treats that happen with a birthday party i try to be quite relaxed about it my kids don't really get given lollies and stuff at home very often so when they do i know that it's not exactly it's not often it's It's not a huge deal and they also even at the ages that they are, understand that it's not, they're not Bought. a yeah. great 
that a great choice over yeah. a long period of time. So more often than not, the kids will have a couple of lollies from a lolly bag that come home with them. And if I can like leave them behind, I do, mm-hmm. but that doesn't happen mm-hmm. very often. Because I give them to the kids. That's right, why. exactly. If I just happen to forget them, then, you know, that's really sad. But it's just that one day too. It's almost like you just limit it. So it's, I, I liken it to Easter. Mm. You know, the kids get heaps of like chocolates at Easter, but you're just like, okay, that's it though. Like Easter day for the 24 hours, go nuts because you know it's just not coming. It's, they're not, they just disappear after that. Well, they do. They go into cupboards. And they and are they never disappear. seen again. So that's what happens with lolly bags that come yeah. home. Oh yeah, uh, we've got yeah, that's, we've got to get rid of some of the yeah, That's true. <laughs> they the go medicine, yeah, they go in the medicine they cabinet. Do. They get hidden away. Everyone forgets about them, which I'm quite happy about. So that's kind of how we deal with it on the receiving end. So we're gonna host a party this year. Yes. A boy is having a birthday. Yes. And it's his first year at school, so he he gets a party like his sister did. What are we going to do? It's a good question. I've been, I've really been thinking about this a lot over the past sort of six months. We managed to not have birthday parties for either of our kids until they started school. And it was wonderful. We'd have a barbecue for family, but that was it. And I really enjoyed that. So our daughters had one birthday party and it wasn't big by any stretch of the imagination. Maybe 10 kids. 10 kids. So it'll be similar. Yeah, it will be similar. But it was so overwhelming, even at that small number, just the, like the the noise and the gifts and the opening and the, you know, the kind of being pulled in 10 different directions and the hype of it mm. was really quite interesting to see unfold. And it's not necessarily something that I would go to any lengths to repeat. <laughs> so I don't know. I feel like, yeah, I don't know. But, I know that there is a movement, slow growing movement of parents who either specify no presence, which I love. I absolutely love. And if I thought that people would actually honor that, I would do it and I may still do it. But I know that in Canada, there's a, like a movement called a toonie party, I think, where the kids who are invited are encouraged to make a birthday card and tape a $2 coin to the inside of the card and that's it. Mm-hmm. And as a parent, both as a giver and as a receiver, that really appeals to me a great deal because we've always taught our kids to save their money and they always have. We often ask parent, uh, family members, like our parents and these uh, aunties and uncles, to give the kids money for their birthday or Christmas and they almost always do. Mm. And our kids have learned from a really young age what it feels like to save up for something. So the idea of giving a couple of dollars or a five dollar note that's a really good idea because we we'll, we'll be going away appeals yeah you know on but a we always in encourage January, so he'll you know love opportunity to do that we always encourage them to save yeah. so to me that's really important and i would be down with that i'd like to see how it unfolds in reality though because then there's the whole other thing like i can't turn up to a party without a present no. even though you've been asked not to you know, that, and it's a generosity thing and it's a social conditioning thing. Like you go to a party, you take a present, even though the invitation going? says no gifts, please. You go anywhere and you say, well, what can I bring? And they say, oh, nothing. And, and you, you still always bring something. bring something. Yes. So that sort of 
It's the same but, mentality as Well, that. yeah, I guess so. But that's, that's a generosity thing. That's a hospitality thing. And you don't want to turn up to a meal at someone's house completely empty-handed. But when someone's specified, I don't know, I'd love to hear from people mm. who, on, both sides of the, on both sides of the coin. Have you held a party like this? Did people honour it? Did people not honour it? Well, Have we you just do Oh, it's been so hard. I know, but I just think that it's time to start thinking about things as parents rather than from the kid's perspective all the time. Stay tuned for this one because we're going to have more to say. It's a work in progress. We will, in the next hostful for October, we will definitely, well, later October, early November. Okay. We will advance our thoughts. Okay. You've heard it here first. The next question's from Krista. She asked, I'm working from home now. First time, no kids at home in 20 years. Ooh, wow. That's, That's a huge. change. I find myself distracted by laundry and dishes. I'd love to <laughs> hear details about how you get work done, your daily rhythm, how you set boundaries around work, home management, and the more details, the better. So this is a question we both will be able to answer. Yes, it is. Uh, I do find it tough. To put that out there right now, it's not easy to work from home and try and manage the household and chores and all that kind of thing and, and I guess compartmentalize that. And I think part of the way that we've managed to, to overcome that is by sometimes not compartmentalizing it, really. You know, we, we, and I'll get into this in a minute, but we will often get up from the desk and go and do a household chore, like hang out the clothes or something like that. And I guess this is slightly different to Krista's situation where it's you and I both doing it. But I mean, we'll sometimes get up and do that together and continue our conversation about work while we're hanging out the clothes. And it's kind of quite nice because you're out in the sunshine, you've got a break from the environment of the office and the sitting and all of that kind of thing. Uh, but there is definitely a need in general, I think, to compartmentalise running a home and working from home, don't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. The way that I – I'll just go straight to practical, the way that I Good. like to do the the distractions piece is that, yeah, you, you work for a period of time, 20 minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, depends on what task mm. you're actually doing – and then you get up and you go and do something for the home. So you're, you're talking the about like the, the Pomodoro house. technique, yeah, I guess. Pomodoro, Fomodoro. <laughs> Fomodoro. Fomodoro? Fear, Fear of missing, missing out, out on, the door, on the Pomodoro. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I haven't read into any of that sort no, of thing. No, so the Pomodoro technique is you set a timer for 25 minutes uh, your timer rings, whatever you're doing. And for that 25 minutes, you do a task. You don't keep changing tasks. You just sit down and you write that thing or you make that thing. Five, the, the bell goes off. You take a five minute break, preferably doing something completely removed from work, but definitely completely removed from the task that you were doing. So that would be a good opportunity to get up and hang the clothes out yeah. or get up and clean up the kitchen yeah. or, you know, even just make a cup of tea or something like that. Then 25 minutes back into it. The only problem I've got with that is that timer thing. 25 minutes, get up five minutes, back in. Like, I don't do that. Like Apparently some... there is a reason for it. Yeah. Well, yeah. What works for me <laughs> Reason, reason. I could write a really detailed email for 15 minutes, get up and do something for 10. Come back, do something for 45 minutes, 
then get up, do something for five minutes. Do you know what I mean? So it, it just varies depending on what task or activity I'm doing. That's how I like to do it. Yeah, and that fact, works with your work. I look forward to the at-home stuff because that clears my head. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to use my brain other than pick up a green peg, pick up a yellow peg. <laughs> do you need your brain for that? <laughs> yeah, don't you? Don't you have to direct your... Your brain has to talk to your hands to pick up a peg? I'm probably I'm sure it does on some level. <laughs> Interesting you say that, though, because I think I'm pretty much the opposite. If I don't force myself to get up, and I think it's partly because of the kind of work that I do as well. Yeah. I mean, my work, we talk about this a lot, not on the podcast, just in general, but your work is more project-based and it often has a finish i mean although as i'm saying this this is more just how you tend to operate you just chunk it up and i get it i do get it but i i'd be more inclined to try and push through those timers or that time or those tasks if the timer wasn't there so i use it as i guess a way of of getting both wearing both hats during the day but i think generally speaking i try and chunk my day up in a different sort of way whereas the morning i get up quite early so from when i get up to when the kids get up is meditation slash yoga slash writing time. And that's pretty much the three things that I do in that time. Then the kids get up and that period of time becomes breakfast, getting people dressed, making beds, getting the house prepared for the day, making sure everyone's ready to go out for school or, you know, prepared to hit work once work time starts. And that time ends at school drop-off, whether or not I do it or you do it. And from that point on, from the moment I get home to the moment I leave to go and get the kids from school or the moment you leave to go and get the kids from school, typically that five-hour period is work time. So I do have to, in that period, you know, head out, put a load of laundry on, maybe clean up the kitchen, whatever it is that needs doing. But I try very hard to be wearing my work hat in that period of time because otherwise knowing myself I would be quite capable of losing a whole work day to getting house stuff done because I'm like, oh, well, I'll do this thing. And then once I've done that thing, I'll go and do that thing. So it's sort of I, I really do need to set those boundaries. And they don't always stick every day. Some days are busier than others. But it does help, I think, to, to be wearing my work hat at that time. Something else that really has worked for us well this last nine months is the weekly whip. Yes, the this has been amazing. work in progress. So on a Monday we sit down and we just chunk it up into sections. So it could be Jackrabbit FM stuff that we need to do, McCallery Media stuff that we need to do, household stuff we need to do, kid stuff, miscellaneous, all that sort of stuff. And you chunk it up so you, you're actually, you can see how your week's going and you might have too much in one pile that you then need to either delegate differently or postpone yeah perhaps push it push it back a week and you just put the days of the week next to it so you know monday through to friday and you know how much work you can get done every day and so that's the way you can you can delegate it really easily Mm. and in addition you have that list of regular household chores that you use as part of that as well. Yeah, so the whip kind of plays really nicely into our philosophy of rhythm rather than routine because every day does look different. 
and that's by design. I quite like it that way. But I, I have and have been working with this same rhythm for years and years where I've nominated the household tasks that need to happen every week. And most days have one or two of those tasks attached to it. Okay. Most weeks that happens. For example. Okay. For example, Mondays is clean the kitchen day. And every Monday, unless things go awry, which sometimes they do, I will clean the kitchen in that morning period. You know, that the time when the kids are getting ready for school, like that period between mm-hmm. seven and nine, say, that's, mm-hmm. that's the job that I do on Mondays. And the beauty of doing it every week is that if I don't get it done one week, it's not disgusting. It's fine, you know, and, and it just takes that pressure off. It's like the consistent work rather than having to do a really deep clean once a month and taking four hours to do it. Uh, Tuesdays I will do – I've completely forgotten what I do on Tuesdays now. You do admin bills and ironing on Tuesdays. Okay, well, there you go. Um. And, you know, so on. Every 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 day has a job or Wednesday, two. Wednesday, clean glass doors. Yes. Thursday, clean the dunnies. The <laughs> dunnies. And the, do the dusting. I will Friday, say, Friday, yeah. clean bathrooms and vacuum. So that's like a... Saturday, <laughs> do whatever didn't get done. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, so that's fine. You kind of make time for those things. Yeah. And I find that if I put time for those in our daily rhythm... They more often than not happen, which is great. And if they don't, it's not a disaster. And I think as long as we give ourselves buffer and margin as well, so Saturdays will often see you doing the vacuuming because it hasn't happened during the week. It's no no biggie really that way. But that is how I kind of make it feel manageable because otherwise I could, as I said, really lose myself to to getting house stuff sorted when I should be actually focusing on work. And the other side of that is the longer rhythms as well. I don't know. I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but the first day of school holidays is always the day that we do a deep clean of the kids' bedrooms. And that means it's only ever two or three months between doing that, you know, between pulling everything out from under their bed, decluttering, letting go of what they don't play with anymore, letting go of the clothes that don't fit, you know, vacuuming around under the bed and all, you know, washing the curtains, cleaning the blinds, all those really annoying chores that can very easily go for a year without doing them yeah if you don't allow for them in your rhythm it happens every two or three months and it's never atrocious so i think those kind of things help as well and it's just trying to to maintain that 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 feeling of being if not on top of things then everything's manageable like everything's fine and doable and i think because i think otherwise that's where overwhelm kicks in and that's where i do lose a day trying to catch up on, on household stuff. Great question. Thank you for writing in. All right. Final question from Joshua. He writes in, Brooke is a fan of the walking dead. Yes, I am. Is Ben? Yes, I am. If the world was presented with a (laughs) zombie apocalypse, do you think it would still be necessary to live a slow life? How well do you suppose you might fare in that situation? Such a good question. That's great. So bizarre, though, because I find myself thinking about this a lot. There's a season of The Walking Dead where they live on a farm or they're in the prison and they're in the prison prison and they're establishing a farm on the prison. And everyone on message boards and online was complaining about how boring it was to see people growing food on The Walking Dead. I'm like, no, no, no. I really want to know. (laughs) How do you sustain life when like society has been completely destroyed? 
I've, I'm actually fascinated by that, that side of it. There's a book, uh, Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, I think it's called, that sort of looks a little bit into that. But I'm just absolutely fascinated by it. And I think it's probably just as, if not more important, to live a slow, intentional life when you're being chased by zombies <laughs> than it is Absolutely. now. Because if your life is in constant peril, then you'd probably think that the, the things that we take for, for, for granted, like holding hands or a sunset now, would actually take on a lot more importance and beauty and significance if you could potentially be eaten tomorrow. <laughs> I, I agree. I'd also, so I think the slow life, slow living is perfect. What I'd probably need to do is do some sort of post-apocalyptic training. Like martial arts martial or something. martial arts training. I'd need to be proficient either with a samurai sword, nunchucks, a baseball bat. Yep. Just something. Uh, maybe a golf club. Maybe I'll be a golf club. That'd be your weapon of choice. A maybe. Golf. Yeah. <laughs> A nice four iron, I think. Okay. What would your weapon of choice be? Oh, probably some... Oh, like, Secateurs. That's what I was just about to say, some, but like long-handled ones, like um, pruning shears. <laughs> oh, when we'd gardeners, last two minutes. We would, yeah, how would I fare? I would fare fine inside the walls of some kind of commune where all I had to do was garden, yeah. I'd be fine. If you asked me to go out into Zombieland, I would not be fine. <laughs> yeah. I would I would probably be one of the first casualties, to be perfectly honest. We, uh, we definitely stay in the one spot, though, don't you think? I'd like to. I wouldn't. You wouldn't move around. I don't no, you think. wouldn't want to, yeah. but I don't think anyone wants to. It's just a matter of starving or being chased by hordes of the undead. Yeah. That seems to be problematic. Yeah, that is problematic. <laughs> Such a good question. Great I could question. talk about that for hours. Awesome question. But we must go because we're losing our voices. Yes. We've been uh, pretty, pretty crook the last couple of weeks or last week at least. So... Um, they were all fantastic questions. Thank you very much for sending them in. And those that did send in questions, we will revisit them on the next The next host for we've got a whole heap of awesome questions that we didn't get a chance to answer. But if you do have questions yourself, head over to Facebook or the blog and leave us a comment or a message somewhere there, somewhere there and we will do our best to answer those as well. It's been fun. It has been fun. Until next time. Until next time. Until next time.